Welcome to Objections to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. We are recording this episode on Friday, June 4th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 6th. How's it going, ladies? It is going. It is going to get hot. It's going to be very hot this weekend. Everyone stay hydrated. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's like I, f- I will feel the misery of being hot, but I also like the summertime. So I'm, I'll take this over the cold any day. I am the opposite. So um, <laughs> enjoy the season, Jasmine, for those of us who cannot <laughs> physically. I will. <laughs> well, I actually love the heat as well. I'm on that side. I am going to the beach this weekend. I'm totally a water baby. So anyway, happy summer, everybody. Um, On today's episode, we will be discussing NYPD closing Washington Square Park early, new voting restriction laws around the country, a massive gravesite of indigenous children found in Canada and much more. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our episode today with our local news story. Jasmine, take it away. Okay, so this is an article that was written in Gothamist. It appeared in their June 1st edition. The author is Jake Offenharts, and the title is Citing Disorder, NYPD to Enforce 10 p.m. Curfew at Washington Square Park. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, Washington Square Park is, uh, there's this big arch, it's downtown in Greenwich Village. It's it's right in front of um, New York University's main library. So there's a lot of NYU students and real estate in the area. Um, So the NYPD is enforcing a new 10 p.m. curfew at Washington Square Park following complaints of disorder and late night revelry at the lower Manhattan public space. Police officials confirmed the change this weekend, which they said was made in coordination with the NYC Parks Department. The curfew, which comes two hours earlier than the current closing time, will be implemented by a special detail of NYPD officers on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights on a quote-unquote ongoing basis, police said. The Greenwich Village Park has served as an increasingly popular nighttime gathering hub as the pandemic has forced venues to shutter and bars to curtail their hours. At the same time, some local residents of the Tony neighborhood have raised concerns about an increase in music, litter, vandalism, and drug use. A template of one letter shared with the Village Sun includes complaints about the negative impact this has, this has on our neighborhood safety, property values, and quality of life. As complaints have mounted in recent months, the NYPD has at times attempted to enforce the park's long-ignored midnight curfew, sending cops in riot gear to clear the square and drawing allegations of excessive force. Catherine Swan, who runs the Washington Square Park blog, said she could not remember police ever shutting the park early on an ongoing basis in the past. There are clearly ways to figure this out without bringing in police and riot gear and curfews, Swan told Gothamist. We're in New York City. There should be a way to instill creative solutions at a public park. In addition to the added NYPD presence, parks enforcement officers will also increase their patrols of the park to address large gatherings, amplified sound, and other conditions, a spokesperson for the city agency told Gothamist. The city parks department will also erect barriers 
on the northwest corner of Washington Square Park. Though drug dealers have long occupied the area, residents say the issue has worsened since the pandemic and is contributing to rising crime. Robberies have increased 72% in the 6th precinct, which covers the park in the last year, while assaults are up nearly 30%. The parks are clearly not for people to use drugs. They're not for people to do any sorts of nefarious activities, NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea said in an interview on Monday. He added that city parks were for people sitting and enjoying themselves, for families and kids. In an emailed statement, the Washington Square Park Conservancy, a nonprofit that helps with park programming, said they supported the closure. After hours usage in Washington Square Park has impinged on people's ability to safely use and enjoy the park during the hours it is open, the statement read. So yeah, like this is something that came to my attention through Twitter, like I I follow the Washington Square Park Conservancy on Twitter and there were people alarmed like at the sight of seeing like these lines of cops with, you know, seeing police with riot gear is always going to make me feel afraid and less safe. So like, what's going on? And they just kept repeating over and over again that they were closing early and not really explaining why. So um, I just did some Googling and that's what I was able to find. So I've always been fascinated by like public parks having, you know, opening and closing hours, you know, like the, like the regulation of public spaces like that. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, there's just a lot of language in there. That's just like clearly prioritizing certain types of, of people over others, right? Like just the emphasis on families and children and not, of course they deserve, you know, peace and happiness and all that stuff. But there's always an emphasis, I think in a lot of political spheres and in the media too, over, you know, um, just on people like that and like, Oh, they're always in danger. And like, you know, just like this idea that you're trying to protect these people and like, who are you protecting them from? And like, there's just like a lot of like, um, I don't know, just like the language being used is, is, um, I don't know. I'm I'm not like loving what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, it's a public space. And I think it's especially with the pandemic, so many places where you would normally be spending your time are not open. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more people that are struggling that might not have jobs or like might be turning more to drugs than they were at a different point mm-hmm. um before everything happened. Like it just Oof, it's it's just scary. Like I feel like anytime these types of things happen, the result is gonna be like brutalizing mm-hmm. marginalized people mm-hmm. because certain people that make more money are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also interesting too because like in New York City, especially as um, I'm not sure where we are with the the like covid laws but as things start opening up and moving forward like bars are going to be open till four in the morning like they always have been so like like you know it's gonna it's just strange to have like such a large public space like sent you know centralized around like nightlife being like off limits at 10 like people don't you know 
in normal times don't even on the weekends like yeah. that's very early and people don't even go high. out until like 11 midnight <laughs> so have they made any announcements of when they're going to push it back or anything like that have you guys heard anything that's it's starting now so like tonight is probably the first night because that article came out on the first and it was saying starting this weekend which is now wow okay yeah i definitely feel like it's totally going to be different because people have gotten adjusted now to the new uh, time frame. So I feel like it's just going to be weird, like being outside at like two in the morning. I don't think anybody's really ready for it, but um, it really does suck about the parks because it's like we want to be outside. Like we've been stuck inside and whether it's us or, you know, people who have to, you know, be on the streets or just people passing through. Like, I feel like it's, we shouldn't like not be able to use the green space in New York city. Are you serious right now? Like, what are we supposed to do other, you know, I don't know. It's natural for us to want to be outside. I'm not sure if the person would be comfortable with me saying their name on here, but someone that I follow on Twitter made the point that uh, a lot of folks were, a lot of people were complaining about how, Oh, it's so expensive to be outside now because they were used to not going out and doing anything for a year. That is so true. And the person <laughs> made this, made the point that especially in New York, there are so few places where you can go and just be unless you're paying for something. And that's extremely true now, like with, you know, things are loosening up, but with COVID restrictions, it's even more obvious so I think it's really, I feel like this is a setup to create more friction and more violence to justify having the police and having their budget and all of the military grade shit that they have. Because I'm often in that area just passing through, like I'm, it's like my old stomping grounds. And many times over the past year, I've been down there and it's just like crawling with police. It ain't nothing going on. There's nothing happening. It's no, they're just everywhere. And it's like this eerie sense of like foreboding, like they're just waiting to jump on people. And it's like, if someone is staying in the park at all hours of the night or like they're doing drugs or like there's an increase in robberies and other types of violence, there's real material structural reasons why that's happening that the city could address, but it's choosing not to. The answer is just police. Like, where are these people going to go? They got to be somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's things like those, like, like those loitering laws, right? That are like, like, how can you tell me I can't just be standing somewhere on public property, you know? And and it's tar- and specifically, you know, it's usually used against um, marginalized communities, those types of laws. Um, you know, if there's like an, it's one thing if there's like a noise complaint or like, you know, like there's people like who are blasting music in the park and people are trying to sleep. But it's another like, I can't just be there. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like there's people that sleep in the park. Yeah. You know? It's like there's. I'm not a proponent of, like, I am not into drugs myself, but I feel like, you know, that's a reality. There are people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just a part of life, you know, and it it just seems so, not seems, I think it is incredibly violent to just give more and more money and power to these people that have, like, the power of life and death over you. 
when you could be funneling that money into like maybe there need to be more spaces that are free and available for the citizens of the city mm-hmm. to be and to spend their time or to have housing so they're not sleeping on a bench. And it's another way to just criminalize, you know, underprivileged people is just to criminalize them right. like, as if they're doing something wrong um, when really they're just being and where else can they be but where they are. You know, it's, it's right. really unfortunate that we pay for fucking air and space and we're trapped into the city. Sometimes I feel like we're just like trapped in like a a, a mess hole of just like people swarmed in this little space in the city. And it really freaks me out, uh, honestly, to know that where can I really have some space? Like I'm from the Midwest. So for me, it's a little different. At least there's trees. But like sometimes I feel like people in New York need to be outside because our lives are so consumed with everything we're trying to right, do. Right, like people fresh don't, air. People don't have yards and stuff. It, yeah. it reminds me of, I, I don't, don't. Know, have y'all <laughs> been, ever been written up or written up, whatever you call it, like getting given a ticket for drinking outside? Listen, I wasn't even going to bring it up, but I actually got a ticket in undergrad for being in the park after dark with my boyfriend. We were in the car <laughs> talking at like a view spot. In it's Cincinnati. Like, and they gave us both a ticket time. for like a hundred and like ten dollars. We weren't doing anything but sitting in the car. And they were like, oh, the park closed at nine. And it was like nine thirty, ten o'clock. And they gave us tickets and oh harassed us God. about it. A hundred and ten dollars for a college student. It was crazy. Right. And it's like those types of things, you know, it's like if you got money, you have space where you can be at all hours or like you have a balcony or maybe you even have a backyard or something like that. That's not everybody. So the only thing you have is like the wide open green space. And it it really it scares me. It makes me feel less safe seeing them around. And I just look at them and I see a huge waste of money because while I don't doubt that crime and everything has gone up, those things go up when people are desperate, when people don't have the things they need to survive. Like all of those numbers are going to go up regardless. So you're either going to fix the root problem or you're going to keep, we're going to keep going into this death spiral of just giving the police more and more power to brutalize folks. And that's, you know, it's not an answer. It's just going to make things worse. And then that's going to become more of a justification for their existence and to get even more money. So, yeah, I'm curious what the mayoral candidates are going to say about it, but I, it's, it's unfortunately, I think, very common for people to have any sort of conflict or disagreement with what's going on and immediately think police, force, violence, get them out and... Yeah, it's it's about to be a hot summer. I know the heat definitely doesn't make these things go better. It makes them even more like tense. Well, let's hope for the best for sure, because I can feel the city burning. <laughs> it's about to go down. All right, we're going to go ahead and jump into our first music break for today. We have a good throwback to kick off. Um, this wonderful queen is about to have a, a documentary about her life. I'm super excited. It's actually called My Life. This is Mary J. Blige. And the song is Be Without You. We'll be right back.
Chemistry was crazy from the kick-go. Neither one of us knew why. We didn't build nothing overnight, cause a love like this takes some time. People swore it off as a phase, said we can't see that. Now from top to bottom, they see that we did that. Yes, it's so true that. Yes, we've been through it. Yes, but we got rich. Yes, see, baby, we've been too strong for too long. Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news story. Um, information, this is an article from the WashingtonPost.com. The author is Elise Feibeck, and the title is, Here's Where GOP Lawmakers Have Passed New Voting Restrictions Around the Country. Depending on where you live, the way you vote could change significantly ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. 
Republican state legislators have introduced hundreds of bills that would tighten access to voting around the country, many of them echoing uh, President the former President Donald Trump's false claims that loose election laws allowed fraud to taint the 2020 White House race. The groundswell began early this year with an introduction of at least 389 bills in 48 states as of May 14th, according to the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University School of Law. While Texas Democrats on Sunday blocked an effort in their state to pass what would have been one of the most stringent new voting measures in the country, 14 states have enacted laws this year that tightened the rules around casting ballots. The announcement came hours after the House Democrats vacated the Capitol to prevent a vote on a divisive bill to rewrite the state's election laws. The unusual move came amid mounting tensions between House and Senate leaders over the passage of several Republican priority bills. Many of the bills target mail voting and other policies that help safeguard the franchise and French sorry, safeguard the franchise during the coronavirus pandemic and help produce the highest turnout among American voters in more than a century. Supporters of Trump claim without evidence that unless subject to strict limits, mail ballots open the door for widespread fraud. Some of the bills also seek to curtail early voting, impose restrictions on voter registration efforts, limit the power of local officials to oversee elections, and stop private donors from supplementing their operational budgets. Some Democrat, Democratic-controlled states have moved in the direction of approving measures to formalize more permissive voting policies from 2020, complementing proposed federal legislation to protect voting rights with a set of national standards. But for new voting restrictions throughout the GOP, the impact of 10 of millions of voters can be very dramatic. As of mid-May, 14 states have enacted 22 laws with provisions that create new hurdles to vote. And another 61 such bills were still advancing in eight to 18 states, according to the Brennan Center. Arkansas and Montana lead the country in a fresh voting restrictions with fresh voting restrictions for in-person voting and added restrictions for assisting voters in returning mail ballots. Alabama, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming, in addition to the states that we listed earlier in the article, have also passed really restrictive laws with restrictive language. So these are um, official efforts being made by lawmakers to uh, stop the methods of voting that we just experienced during COVID because people were unable to get to the polls. This is really messed up. Yeah, it's super scary. <laughs> um, I, you know, this is like the sort of stuff that sometimes keeps not keeps me up at night. Like, you know, as as exciting it is to be in this, you know, post trump era as much you know damage permanent damages he may have done like you know to see um you know the positive things that are that are able to come out of that you know there's there's people working to try and make sure that um that can't happen in the future and it's scary it's very scary and some of these some of these bills they're just so cartoonishly evil like yes. there were things that were saying like 
you can't drive people to the polls if they're not in your immediate family. Like exactly. stuff like that. And like you're in fucking Texas. Like Texas is huge and they've they've done so much to make it where polling sites are like few and far between, specifically if it's in a majority non white area. So that's gonna hurt you. There's a lot of black churches that do like souls to the polls and have been doing that for many years, like where you register people and you go together as a group like on Sunday and they're trying to curtail Sunday voting. It's just so like the singularity of mind and the focus to mount these assaults like on voting rights, on their misunderstanding, like their deliberate misinterpretation of what critical race theory is to just be like any teaching about racism, abortion rights, trans rights, like other LGBTQ rights. It's like, bam, bam, bam. It's like every day there's another like super villain type story brewing about all these bills across the country. And it's just so... <sighs> It's it's like mind blowingly like frightening, depressing. Like I don't even know where to begin. I came across this article because I was I'm starting to try to initiate you know uh, voter registration drives for my students. Right, the primaries are coming up. I'm working the election, so I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to do this? Like virtually, I have half the students on campus and half of them not. So I'm like trying to come up with ideas, and I just you know went down this this hole. And when I thought about it, I was like. I absolutely have to find a way to register as many people as possible because there is direct opposition happening in our faces to overturn what we've done in the past. And and a lot of the things that people were marching for last year, dying for, uh, going through to cast these votes to be where we are now, it was a very emotional election season. I remember when I went to cast my vote, I was like almost cried when I walked out of there. Like it was insane. I was just like thinking about everything that was on the line at this moment, you know? Uh, we need to do as much as we can, okay? To make sure that people are still in this game, y'all. Like not because it's a, not a presidential election year, but we about to vote for the mayor of New York City. We got all these clowns, you know, try to do their thing respectfully. I'm just saying, we re really need to not get lost in the sauce about this because what happened last year was monumental. That like what we made happen facing the circumstances that we were all under in the election was amazing. We we really made it happen. We really did that shit. Regardless of what these people keep trying to tell you about all these lies and all this bullshit, we did that. And I just, you know, want to take this moment to really bring that to everybody's attention because this opposition is real. And if we are not vigilant about this and like keeping the conversation going in our communities or wherever we can, we're going to miss the opportunity to fucking try to maintain the little bit of order that we think we got. We think we got right now. Um, so, yeah, I'm off my soapbox, but I just wanted to make sure we're listening. We're paying attention to these things. Um, cause this is really happening. It's like 400 bills on the table right now to stop people from get, being able to vote. It's, it's insane. It's insane. Um, yeah. People on the right are committed to like minority rule, like by any means necessary. And it's very nakedly open. Like we see what happened with the Capitol riots and how those people are barely being brought to account. 
Oh, there's gosh, all these yes. you know legislative things happen it's like it's happening through legal means through illegal means things that you see in the news things that you're not aware of happening but there's people who actively believe that you know essentially if you're not if you're not a straight white able-bodied christian man you don't count and what you have to say about this country doesn't matter so I I do I worried last year and I continue to worry about people being so happy that um you know Trump is not in office anymore that they don't realize how very much like still in this we are and if you look at history like there's been many <laughs> examples of where it seemed like the country was turning a corner and then there was a massive violent widespread white backlash and I feel like that's what we're in the middle of right now. And I, I just don't know where this, where things are headed. You know, I'd like to try to be hopeful, but it's, it's difficult to feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it is scary and it's hard to be hopeful. Um, but it's also important not to, I think given to like, I don't know if the word's complacency or like despair, right? Like, cause if you, yeah, it, I mean, and I think the, the, the last year's election, I think really showed that too, that like, you know, there's no guarantee of success, but you can't, you just have to give it out your all for those types of things. Um, I also want to throw out there too, that like, you know, um, we, while we're facing these, these awful things that we want to stop from happening, I think, you know, we were that's one front of it and the other front is also imagining what like the better world looks like and like for example um the fact that you even have to register to vote right like that that is like uh, in itself this hurdle that doesn't need to exist like you can be automatically registered to vote at a certain age you know in this as a citizen of this country um and i you know is there a reason why you you shouldn't be no it just makes it one more that's thing that's a to, good point yeah i never thought about it like that that's a yeah. good point yeah you know, it's just one more hurdle to make it harder for especially youth to vote. Um, so, yeah, just like, you know, envision that world that you want. Also, while you're also battling these cartoonishly evil, <laughs> like twirling their mustaches in the corner um, politicians. Absolutely. And just overall, just, you know, stay stay woke, people. Stay vigilant. Stay in it. Please don't don't step off because you feel comfortable. We not comfortable out here. Um, don't get comfortable. It's, it's an illusion. Okay. Um, all right. So we're going to go ahead and pop into our next track. Um, this is a jazz track by an amazing, um, artist named Kamani Kamazi Washington, and it's called truth. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our international news segment. Emily, what do you have for us? All right. So uh, this is a very sad one. Um, Research for this story comes from a variety of sources, including a May 29th Reuters article by Anna Mailer Paperny, uh, titled Remains of 215 Children Found at Former Indigenous School Site in Canada. Uh, the article explains, quote, the remains of 215 children, some as young as three years old, were found at the site of a former residential school for Indigenous children, a discovery Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau described as heartbreaking on Friday. Uh, the children were students at Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia that closed in 1978, according to the Tekemloops Te Sekweb Pemic uh, Nation, apologies if I pronounced that incorrectly, um, which said the remains were found with the help of a ground-penetrating radar specialist. Uh, quote, Canada's residential school system, which forcibly separated Indigenous children from their families, constituted cultural genocide, a six-year investigation into the now-defunct system found in 2015. The report documented horrific physical abuse, rape, malnutrition, and other atrocities suffered by many of the 150,000 children who attended the schools, typically run by Christian churches on behalf of Ottawa from the 1840s to the 1990s. It found more than 4,100 children died while attending residential school. The deaths of the 215 children buried in the grounds of what was once Canada's largest residential school are believed to not have been included in that figure and appear to have been undocumented until the discovery. And just want to note, this is not ancient history and it's not even old history. Um, within the last 30 years, this school system was still in operation. The last school closed in 1996. Uh, that's a note from the New York Times. Um or I got that date from the New York Times. So um, the Catholic Church operated Kamloops and, quote, Pope Francis rejected a direct appeal for an apology from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in 2018. But, quote, the Archbishop of Vancouver, J. Michael Miller, apologized on behalf of his archdiocese for the church's role. Uh, quote, in 2008, the Canadian government formally apologized for the system. Uh, the Tekemloops Te Sekwempemek uh, nation said it was engaging with the coroner and reaching out to the home communities whose children attended the school. They expect to have preliminary findings by mid-June. Uh, a New York Times article by Ian Austin titled Horrible History, Mass Grave of Indigenous Children Reported in Canada uh, gives some more background about the school system. Quote, for decades, most Indigenous children in Canada were taken from their families and forced into boarding schools. A large number never returned home, their families given only vague explanations or none at all. Uh, Chief Roseanne Casimir of the Tekemloops Te Sekwepemek First Nation is quoted as saying, it's a harsh reality and it's our truth. It's our history. And it's something that we've always had to fight to prove. To me, it's always been a horrible, horrible history. A former Kamloops student named Geraldine Bob told the 2015 commission, quote, that the staff members would just start beating you and lose control and hurl you against the wall, throw you on the floor, kick you, punch you. Quote, while there have been, while there have long been rumors of unmarked graves at schools, if the findings in a preliminary report presented to the Tekemloops Te Sekwepemek First Nation this week are confirmed, it will be the first time a major burial site has been discovered. 
Uh, quote, Chief Casimir said the search for remains at Kamloops began in the early 2000s, in part because official explanations, including suggestions that the missing children had simply run away, uh, did not match with the stories conveyed by former students. There had to be more to the story, she said. Um, I also found a June 2nd article by Tristan Hopper from a Canadian publication called National Post with even more details than I'm going to share. But I do want to note that, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, um, the publication National Post is actually known for being a conservative newspaper. Um, and it also had like one incident where it had to retract a pretty sensual- sensationalized story that it printed in 2006. It ended up being false. So um, with that in mind, like it is a real publication and the information it had was super relevant. And um, so the article is titled, The Graves Were Never a Secret, Why So Many Residential School Cemeteries Remain Unmarked. It explains, quote, from the earliest days of the Indian residential school system, the federal government openly acknowledged high rates of student mortality. An official 1907 report into Manitoba Indian residential schools even included charts cataloging pupils as either good, sick, or dead. Uh, There was never an official policy on how to handle the dead from Indian residential schools, but because the Department of Indian Affairs refused to ship home the bodies of children for cost reasons, it follows that most were buried on or near school grounds. Quote, in 1963, after the city of Brandon, Manitoba, built a large recreational park atop one of the cemeteries of the former Brandon Industrial School, it took a sustained letter-writing campaign from one of the school's former students, Alfred Kirkness, to have even a rudimentary fence erected around the site. It saddened my heart to think the white society would keep right on tramping over these graves when they were told of the cemetery and its location, Kirkness wrote in 1964 after an initial round of letters was ignored. Um, And finally, I want to note that this is probably not the last we'll hear about this tragic story and ones like it. Uh, A May 31st article from The Guardian explains, quote, indigenous groups in Canada are calling for a nationwide search for unmarked graves at residential school sites after the discovery of the remains of more than 200 children um, and after it shocked the country. Quote, the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations and the Saskatchewan government have said they want Ottawa to help research undocumented deaths and burials at residential schools in the province. Federation Chief Bobby Cameron said finding the children's remains and giving them proper burials was important to help First Nations communities and families find closure. Um, yeah, that's a, it's really bad. <laughs> um, and, um... You know, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I think a lot of us like consider Canada to be like the liberal, you know, sibling of America to the north. But uh, this whole area has a really long, dark colonial um, history of treating um, non-white people like they literally don't matter, like they're disposable. Um, and it's it's really awful. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's in, and it's interesting because, you know, I love that we do try to bring as many stories about the indigenous communities of the world to this show because we have to talk about it. It's a real thing and making people invisible by, you know, slaughtering them, not accounting for them as human beings in your society is wrong on every level, especially when that is their native land. <laughs> so, Um, This is really sad. And I know there's probably so many more stories like this that we have not heard, 
you know, about um, millions of people who have been in this situation. Um, yes, it's, it's really painful. It's a painful past. And I definitely think that it's important for us to continue these, this dialogue about this because it's like a forgotten history that people don't want to acknowledge. And it's just as important as any other history that is important to us. Yeah, it's really, um, whether it's the U.S., Canada, Central America, Latin America, like all of these continents, you know, there were people here before and they're still here that have been not only murdered, like it's nothing will bring these children back, but there's also people alive and well that are dealing with like abuse that are going missing. Like a lot of women and girls are missing and murdered and they're indigenous in the U.S. and in Canada. And they're not looked for. They're not a priority. Um, There was a recent story about, um, I believe also in British Columbia and Canada, there were indigenous girls that were in foster care. And rather than put them in a situation where they were less likely to be abused. It's just assumed basically that they will be molested. So they were inserted with IUDs as young as nine, 10 years old. You know, that's also like a violation and that can be a form of genocide. Like if you are forcing certain types of birth control and sterilization on people against their will because of their identity. Um, There was the Mi'kmaq, lobster issue that happened in Nova Scotia where indigenous fishermen that have rights to fish certain waters were being attacked and bullied by non-indigenous fishermen who felt threatened by them you know and this is like their water their land their livelihood for thousands of years and you had people destroying their food you know so it's just this shit is so pervasive. It manifests in so many different ways across, you know, up and down the Americas, like not just any one location. It's everywhere. Right. It's definitely, um, it's a global, you know, situation with indigenous people always. And, you know, it's really hard to um, consider Like every time we do stories about communities that I either identify with or I don't actually, I always think about what it's like when you hear this story and it's about your community. Um, How do you feel about that? You know, like that's a a real thing that so many people um, in this world who, who feel are made to be invisible. And then you hear stories about this in your community, you know, just the layers of um, insult to injury and just, you know, hatred is just alarming. And, and it's, it's really sad to consider that, you know, these are communities that may not have as much access to help or resources that will help them cope with these things throughout life. And I always think about that as well. You know, the mental health of these, these communities when this stuff comes out and we hear these stories. Yeah, like we we always put um, links and things on our Facebook page and we share things on our Instagram. But so we'll do that with this story as well. But I want to say there's so much that you will not be taught in school about um, the indigenous people on of the land that you live on. So really just if you're listening, make the effort to learn 
because a lot of it is erased and a lot of it is designed to make you think that these things, like Emily said, are ancient history or are so long ago when they're not at all. Um, And what you find can be shocking, you know, like children being sold for like $10, taken from their family, Mm -hmm. being beaten for speaking your language, you know, so many horrible things that have happened and are still happening now. Like it's Mm -hmm. not all 1850 something, like it's an ongoing genocide happening against Mm -hmm. the peoples of the Americas. And on to a lot, like add to that too, you know, there's a long history in this country of not only ignoring that fact, but like rewriting it and creating a new narrative. Like, for example, like our national parks were never like these pristine right. untouched lands. Like that's a myth, right? There were people living in our, in our big national parks and that were forcibly removed to create this idea that this is like this pristine wilderness where no one lives and that's not that doesn't exist right um it's everywhere in this country right right no it's so true you know it's a it's a damn shame because everywhere in the U.S. and I'm sure also in Canada there's so many things named after native peoples or Mm -hmm. native words but then their actual stories are erased or they're whitewashed to hell. Um, and it's it's really, it's disturbing because things are going so far to the right in this country that there are people who are transitioning from whitewashing the history to almost being like proud that, yeah, like, well, we won, they lost or whatever, which is extremely sick and unhinged. But Or, or even denying people from telling the true history as they did in the story that we talked about uh, last week, denying people who want to speak the truth about America's dark past, um, the opportunity to do so and silencing them, silencing them from telling the truth, silencing them from, um, you know, changing the course of history with, with more truth and and less lies, you know, um, we have to keep in mind about that too, because these, there are people, there are scholars, there are there is information available, but it's limited. It's not readily available for us. So you definitely have to seek knowledge and gain better understanding. Yeah, I would. If you're in the city, well, I don't. People listening could be anywhere in the world, but if you're in New York City, there's a Smithsonian Museum that is free down by Bowling Green in Manhattan. And it's the um, Museum of the American Indian. And I, I, it's free to go. And I, I believe it's, you know, as far as I can tell, like, I think they do a great job about educating about the um, peoples of the Americas. So, yeah, just you can't wait for these things to be spoon fed to you because there's a powerful lobby behind us not knowing about these things, about not having solidarity with indigenous people. So educate yourself and seek out the living people now that are bringing these things to light and that need support today, Um, whether it's protecting their land or making the effort to help find people that are going missing and, you know, law enforcement is throwing their hands up. Like there's ways we can support people today that unfortunately the mainstream media doesn't seem to highlight as much as they should. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that story, Emily. Uh, Definitely great and want to hear more um, stories about Indigenous people as much as possible. (laughs) Um, And can you please grace us with the good news as well? Yes, more of my voice on this segment. Um, So 
the good news. So, um, many listeners may already be aware of this, but, um, this comes from a June 1st ABC7 Eyewitness News article titled Coronavirus New York City, Zero New COVID Deaths in NYC, Lowest Positivity Since Start of Testing. The article explains, quote, New York City continues to emerge from the coronavirus pandemic with promising new numbers, including zero deaths and a 0.83% positivity rate that is the lowest level since the start of COVID testing. Um, you know, while this isn't a statewide statistic, um, and the governor did know that there were eight deaths reported statewide uh, on Monday, um, none of them were in New York City. And the state positivity rate has also dropped to 0.77%. Uh, quote, more than 8 million doses of the vaccine have been delivered to New York City with the 8,289 and uh, 289,469 doses representing the largest vaccination effort in city history, um, which is really awesome. And then um, as of a few hours ago, um, NJ.com reported that Governor Murphy of New Jersey has ended New Jersey's COVID health emergency. Um, So, you know, it's almost like it's hard to believe that we're really potentially coming out of it. But um, all, you know, signs point to yes. So that's some pretty good news in my book. (laughs) I agree. It's definitely some good news. Good to be here and be with you all this Sunday, as well as my co-hosts. We made it. We on the other side. Uh, rest in peace to those who did not. So um, that is it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or on iTunes Podcast. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. The song is titled Make the Most and it's by Loner and it features her. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Have a good week. Bye. Stay cool. Looking at your smile. Standing eyes, I can stay a while. Feeling is a vibe. We never even lost time I could do this for days I would run a thousand miles for you I could do this many ways But I'ma fall fast and die with you Wanna chase that, going crazy I'm like, oh my, but I'm laid back Gotta save that, time to face facts If you love me, girl, just say that I don't wanna leave your mind to wonder I'll give you some time Whatever you want, you just say the word We can do the time Lock away the key, that's what you prefer I could do this for days I would run a thousand miles for you I could do this many ways I'ma fall fast and die with you Don't chase that, going crazy I'm like, oh my, but I'm laid back Gotta save that, time to face facts If you love me, girl, just say 
I wanna grow old 